I would like to address my remarks this evening to you young men of the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthoods who are planning or contemplating on serving a mission, also to you young men who perhaps might be struggling as to whether or not you want to serve a mission. I would like to share with you the following story. Nine years ago this spring, my son Ben came to me and said, Dad, we're going to hold our family reunion this summer at Flaming Gorge Recreation Area, a distance of 220 miles east of Salt Lake City. He said, why don't you, myself, and any of the boys in our family that would like to leave a few days early, ride our bikes to Flaming Gorge, and meet the rest of the family there? I said, that sounds great, but we only have one motorcycle. Ben said, no, Dad, you misunderstand. I mean pedal bicycles. I thought he was kidding. He said, I will outline and prepare a training schedule for us. We'll get up early Saturday mornings, and for three hours we'll go out and ride over the courses I will outline so that when the time comes, we will be prepared to go. I said, okay, not really knowing what I was getting in for. I didn't own a bicycle, and I knew I would have to use my daughter's old, heavy, 10-speed bicycle with what seemed like bent wheels and a seat that was terribly hard. I also knew that getting up early on Saturday mornings was not one of my favorite things. But knowing that some of my sons wanted me to go with them, I said okay. As the time for training and preparation came, I found all kind of excuses not to go on the training rides. However, one Saturday I rode with them to the top of Parley's Canyon and back. It was hard, but I thought I would be okay. Little did I know. The time for the trip came. I joined my boys the second day of the trip as I had meetings the first day. The journey that second day took us from Heber City to Roosevelt, approximately 100 miles. As we checked into the motel that evening, I called my wife at home and told her I had never hurt so badly in my life. Every muscle, bone, and fiber in my body hurt from my head to my feet. I implored her, when you come tomorrow with the rest of the family, please bring all the ointment, lotion you can find. She said, honey, you sound terrible. I told her I look and feel worse than I sound. The next day I hated to see the dawn come, knowing what it would be like to sit on that hard seat and pedal all day once again to reach our destination, especially the stretch from Vernal to Flaming Gorge, which would include approximately 36-plus miles with grades up to 9% and 90-degree-plus temperatures. Needless to say, for me, the whole trip was a very trying and arduous task. But for my sons, who spend a lot of time waiting at the top of the hills for their slow, unprepared dad, it was exciting and fun and rewarding. That evening, as we arrived at our destination, I came to an easy yet profound recognition of how poorly prepared I was for what should have been a great experience with my sons, but was not because I did not take the time to properly prepare. I resolved that night that I would never again be that unprepared. I went home and bought bicycles for myself and my two youngest sons and started training and preparing. So by the time the next summer came, my sons and I could ride our bikes to Lake Powell a distance of 300 miles 
which we did. The next year we cycled to St. George, and every year thereafter we rode our bikes to Lake Powell until our mission called to Scotland two years ago. If it is important to prepare for a bike ride, my young friends, why is it then so much more important for you in this life to prepare to serve as missionaries? Why? Because of the eternal significance of a mission in your life and in the lives of others. We learn of the responsibility we have to preach the gospel when Jesus said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Paul to the Corinthians counseled, For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. I plead with you, my young friends, to never be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Prepare yourselves and make yourselves worthy to receive a mission call. Live clean, pure lives. Study the scriptures. Not just read, but study the scriptures, especially the Book of Mormon, as President Benson has counseled us to do. Be strong enough to live the word of wisdom and follow the counsel of your parents and priesthood leaders. I know you young men are growing up in a world with all kinds of peer pressure. You may even be struggling with the decision of going on a mission because of your educational and vocational desires, or because of a budding musical or athletic career, or a serious girlfriend you may find hard to leave. I understand because I have seven sons as well as a son-in-law who have had to make similar decisions. Yet each has made that decision to serve. If you wonder or struggle as to what will be the most worth to you, listen to the direction given by the Lord. For many times you have desired of me to know that which would be of the most worth unto you. And now behold, I say unto you that the thing which will be of the most worth unto you will be to declare repentance unto this people, that you may bring souls unto me, that you may rest with them in the kingdom of my Father. I promise you, young men, that if you will commit and prepare to serve a mission, it will be the most rewarding and exciting experience of your lives. Yes, there will be many and varied experiences. Yes, even humorous experiences like the elder who shared with me how he and his companion got on the bus. And as they sat down in the seat in front of them was a grandfather with a young grandson who was having a temper tantrum. Missionaries being as ingenious as they are, these two elders decided that they would see what they could do to quiet the little boy down and help the grandfather. The boy had a baseball cap on. The elders proceeded to take the cap off his head, and they made a gesture like they threw it out the window. But instead, they quickly hit it back down under their seat. Then they told the boy, as he felt his head, that if he wished hard enough, he could wish it back on his head. The boy looked at his grandpa, wondering what was going on, and as he did, the elders quickly put the cap back on his head. The boy immediately felt the cap on his head. He took it off, he looked at it again, and then proceeded to throw it out the window, saying, Do it again, Grandpa. <laughs> I think perhaps the elders got off at the next stop. Yes you, may, yes, you may have many humorous experiences on your mission, but these experiences, which will be the most joyful and rewarding to you, 
and, with, and which will be with you throughout eternity will be the times when the Spirit will work with you to touch the lives of others, such as Sister Chardo from Sardinia, Italy, who joined the church and came to Scotland on a mission. As Sister Chardo left her mission for her mission, her mother would hardly speak to her, and her father said she would never be welcomed back home again. But the faith of this young lady brought forth a miracle. Approximately a year after Sister Chardo had been on her mission, she came to see me one day with tears running down her eyes. She had a letter in hand from her mother. I, too, had tears come to my eyes as I read the letter telling her daughter she had been baptized and that her father was attending church and was going to listen to the discussions. I think of a Tony Ridden and a Tracy McFall from Scotland who were baptized a couple of years ago, coming from backgrounds that you would have never thought this possible. Yet both stood just a few months ago at their own missionary farewells, with tears in their eyes, expressing love and gratitude for the, for the elders who brought the gospel into their lives. Just how important is a Sister Chardo, a Tony Ridden, a Tracy McFall, and many others just like them? The Lord gives us the answer to that question. Remember the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. For behold, the Lord your Redeemer suffered death in the flesh, Wherefore he suffered the pain of all men, that all men might repent and come unto him. Wherefore you are called to cry repentance unto this people. And if it so be that you should labor all your days in crying repentance unto this people, and bring, save it being, bring one soul unto me, how great shall be your joy with him in the kingdom of my Father. O youth of noble birthright, I bear witness to you this night that if you will commit, prepare, and with a willing heart go forth to serve Jesus Christ and preach his gospel, great will be your blessings and reward. Listen to the words of our Savior. Ye are blessed, for the testimony which ye have borne is recorded in heaven for the angels to look upon, and they rejoice over you and your sins are forgiven you. Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Stay on the Lord's side, and you will find eternal joy and fulfillment. I bear my witness to you that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This is his church. President Ezra Taft Benson is our living prophet. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My brothers and sisters, I very much appreciate Brother Cuthbert's prayer. It is always an awesome responsibility to speak in this historic tabernacle. I seek the direction of the Holy Spirit. For a moment, may I take you back 142 years when there was, of course, no tabernacle here, nor temple, nor temple square. On July 24, 1847, the pioneer company of our people came into this valley. An advance group had arrived a day or two earlier. Brigham Young arrived on Saturday. The next day, 
Sabbath services were held, both in the morning and in the afternoon. There was no hall of any kind in which to meet. I suppose that in the blistering heat of that July Sunday, they sat on the tongues of their wagons and leaned against the wheels while the brethren spoke. The season was late, and they were faced with a gargantuan and immediate task if they were to grow seed for the next season. But President Young pleaded with them not to violate the Sabbath then or in the future. The next morning they divided into groups to explore their surroundings. Brigham Young, Wilford Woodruff, and a handful of their associates hiked from their campground a little to the south of us, on past the ground where we are, and up the hill to the north of us. They climbed a dome-shaped peak, President Young having difficulty because of his recent illness. When the brethren stood on the summit, they looked over this valley to the south of them. It was largely barren except for the willows and rushes that grew along the streams that carried water from the mountains to the lake. There was no building of any kind, but Brigham Young had said the previous Saturday, this is the place. The summit where they stood was named Ensign Peak out of reference to these great prophetic words of Isaiah. And he, speaking of God, will lift up an ensign to the nations from far, and will hiss unto them from the end of the earth, and behold, they shall come with speed swiftly. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations, and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel, and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. There is some evidence to indicate that Wilford Woodruff took from his pocket a bandana handkerchief and waved it as an ensign or a standard to the nations, that from this place should go forth the word of the Lord, and to this place should come the people of the earth. I think they may also on that occasion have spoken of the building of the temple, which today stands a few feet east of here in fulfillment of the words of Isaiah. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. How foolish someone might have said had he heard these men that July morning of 1847. They did not look like statesmen with great dreams. They did not look like rulers poring over maps and planning an empire. These were exiles driven from their fair city on the Mississippi into this desert region of the West. But they were possessed of a vision drawn from the scriptures and words of revelation. I marvel at the foresight of that little group. It was both audacious and bold. It was almost unbelievable. Here they were, almost a thousand miles from the nearest settlement to the east, 
and almost 800 miles from the Pacific coast. They were in an untried climate. The soil was different from that of the black loam of Illinois and Iowa, where they had most recently lived. They had never raised a crop here. They had never experienced a winter. They had not built a structure of any kind. These prophets, dressed in old travel-worn clothes, standing in boots they had worn for more than a thousand miles from Nauvoo to this valley, spoke of a millennial vision. They spoke out of a prophetic view of the marvelous destiny of this cause. They came down from the peak that day and went to work to bring reality to their dream. Sometimes in our day, as we walk our narrow paths and fill our little niches of responsibility, we lose sight of the grand picture. When I was a small boy, draft horses were common. An important part of the harness was the bridle. On the bridle were blinders, one on each side. They were so placed that the horse could see only straight ahead and not to either side. They were designed to keep him from becoming frightened or distracted and to keep his attention on the road at his feet. Some of us do our work as if we had blinders on our eyes. We only see our own little narrow track. We catch nothing of the broader vision. Ours may be a small responsibility in the Church. It is good to fulfill that responsibility with diligence, and it is also good to know how that responsibility contributes to the great overall program of the growing Kingdom of God. President Harold B. Lee once said from this pulpit, quoting an unknown writer, Survey large fields and cultivate small ones. My interpretation of that statement is that we ought to recognize something of the breadth and depth and height, grand and wonderful, large and all-encompassing of the program of the Lord, and then work with diligence to meet our responsibility for our assigned portion of that program. Each of us has a small field to cultivate. While so doing, we must never lose sight of the greater picture the large composite of the divine destiny of this work. It was given us by God, our eternal Father, and each of us has a part to play in the weaving of its magnificent tapestry. Our individual contribution may be small, but it is not unimportant. When we were children, we learned a nursery rhyme. Little drops of water, little grains of sand make the mighty ocean and the pleasant land. So it is with us in our service in the kingdom of God. Many small efforts and little acts become the cumulative pattern of a great worldwide organization. On March 26, 1907, the First Presidency issued a proclamation to the world in response to hateful criticism, charging the Church and its leaders with selfish interests and narrow bigotry. They responded, Our motives are not selfish. Our purpose is not petty and earthbound. We contemplate the human race, past, present, and yet to come, as immortal beings for whose salvation it is our mission to labor. And to this work, 
Broad as eternity and deep as the love of God, we devote ourselves now and forever. We serve as teachers in quorums and auxiliary organizations. We serve as missionaries at home and abroad. We serve as researchers in family history and as temple workers, hopefully each with diligence in our little corner. And from all of this there emerges a remarkable and wonderful pattern, a phenomenon grand in its comprehensiveness, as broad as the earth and encompassing all of the generations of men. If each of us does not do well that which is his or hers to do, then there is a flaw in the entire pattern. The whole tapestry is injured. But if each of us does well his or her part, then there is strength and beauty. I need not remind you that this cause in which we are engaged is not an ordinary cause. It is the cause of Christ. It is the kingdom of God, our eternal Father. It is the building of Zion in the earth, the fulfillment of prophecy given of old, and of a vision revealed in this dispensation. Under its present organization, it has been moving forward for only a little more than a century and a half. It will continue, ever-growing and spreading over the earth, as part of a great millennial pattern until the time comes when he whose right it is to reign will rule as King of kings and Lord of lords. When President Young and his brethren stood atop the peak to the north of us and spoke of an ensign to the nation, they soon put in place a program to implement it, and this notwithstanding the circumstances in which they found themselves. In August of 1852, only five years later, a special conference was held in the old tabernacle on this square. President Heber C. Kimball opened by saying, We have come together today, according to previous appointment, to hold a special conference to transact business a month earlier than usual, inasmuch as there are elders to be selected to go to the missions of the earth, and they want an earlier start than formerly. The missions we will call for during this conference are generally not to be very long ones. Probably from three to seven years will be as long as any man will be absent from his family. <laughs> the clerk then read 98 names of individuals who had, who had been proposed to foreign missions. To me, it is a thing of wonder that at a time when our people were struggling to gain a foothold in these mountains, they put the spread of the gospel ahead of comfort, security, the well-being of their families, and all other considerations. Across the broad prairie between the mountains of the West and the Missouri and Mississippi rivers, there were two bodies of Latter-day Saints moving in opposite directions. Missionaries traveling to the eastern states in Europe past converts gathering from those lands to the Zion of the West. There was likewise a movement to the West Coast and across the Pacific, with elders going to Hawaii, even to Hong Kong, China, Siam, Ceylon, and India. This was all part of this grand vision of an ensign to the nations. 
It has gone on ever since, and it goes on today and at an accelerated pace. In a hundred nations, missionaries of the Church are teaching the doctrines of salvation. They are building the kingdom across the world. They are touching for everlasting good the lives of all with whom they work. And generations who come after them will be affected by what they do today. They are fulfilling the declarations of ancient prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord concerning the marvelous work and a wonder that should come to pass in the dispensation of the fullness of times. I think of this beautiful temple square where we are meeting. I think of the travail that lies behind its creation. Last year, some three and a half million visitors came here. They came from all states of the United States and all provinces of Canada. They came from other nations around the globe. Their freely written comments remind of the words of Isaiah, written of old, that in the latter days people from the nations will come to learn of the ways of God and to walk in His paths. Listen to a sampling of these comments from a Protestant from New Jersey. I have often heard the word Mormon and associated it with a fanatic religious group. I couldn't have been more wrong. From a Congregationalist from Massachusetts, I have always felt that religion should be a joy, and you certainly show it. From a Christian from Maine, this is beautiful. It is the first time in my life I have wondered if my religion is the right one. From a Catholic from Pennsylvania, I envy your way of life. A Presbyterian from Canada, God is in this place. We see him everywhere. A Christian from Germany, I enjoyed myself very much. I cannot believe such a place exists that offers so much and asks for no money. And so they go on and on by the thousands. Many come with doubts and bias. They leave with appreciation and curiosity. The great work that is being done here is all a part of the fabric of this tremendous cause we describe as the kingdom of God in the earth. And then I think of the work that goes on in this temple and in the other temples of the Church. We are sometimes looked upon as provincial. Is there any group in all the world with a vision so broad and a work so comprehensive? I know of no other people so concerned with the eternal well-being of the sons and daughters of God of all generations. Surely the work that goes on in these sacred houses is the most unselfish of all work. Those who labor here do so for the most part in behalf of those beyond the veil of death. They do it because of a knowledge of the importance of eternal ordinances and covenants. They do it so that even the dead may exercise agency concerning the acceptance or rejection of sacred ordinances. It is all part of the great pattern of the God of heaven who is our eternal Father and of His Son who is our Savior and our Redeemer the author of our salvation through whose sacrifice 
came universal resurrection from the dead and opportunity for exaltation for those who, whether in life or in death, will walk in obedience to his commandments. My brethren and sisters, the priesthood is upon the earth. The power of God given to men to act in his name and for his purposes. It carries with it the keys of the kingdom for an ensign and for the gathering of the people of the Lord in the last days. My co-workers in this great cause and kingdom, you and I are weaving the grand design of that standard to the nations. It waves to all the world. It says to men and women everywhere, Come and walk with us and learn of the ways of the Lord. Here is the priesthood given to men in these last days. Here are the great keys for the redemption of the dead. Here is the authority to carry the gospel to the nations of the earth. We do not say it selfishly. We do not say it with egotism. We do not say it boastfully. We say it as those charged with a great and compelling responsibility. We say it with love in our hearts for the God of heaven and the risen Lord and with love for the children of men everywhere. To those of the Church, all within the sound of my voice, I give the challenge that while you are performing the part to which you have been called, never lose sight of the whole majestic and wonderful picture of the purpose of this, the dispensation of the fullness of times. Weave beautifully your small thread in the grand tapestry, the pattern for which was laid out for us by the God of heaven. Hold high the standard under which we walk. Be diligent, be true, be virtuous, be faithful, that there may be no flaw in that banner. The vision of this kingdom is not a superficial dream in the night that fades with the sunrise. It is veritably the plan and work of God, our eternal Father. It has to do with all of His children. While grubbing the sagebrush of these western valleys to lay the foundations for a commonwealth, while doing all of the many mundane things they were required to do to stay alive and grow, our forebears ever kept before them the grandeur of the great cause in which they were engaged. It is a work which we must do with the same vision they held. It is a work which will go on after we have left this scene. God help us to do our very best as servants called under His divine will to carry forward and build the kingdom with imperfect hands united together to execute a perfect pattern. I so pray as I bear witness of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. President Thomas S. Monson, second counselor in the First Presidency, has just spoken to us. President Benson has felt that he would not speak tonight, but we convey his love and blessing. Brethren of the priesthood, wherever we may be assembled this evening. Before giving the closing remarks, I remind you that the CBS Tabernacle Choir broadcast 
will be from 9.30 to 10 tomorrow morning. Those desiring to attend this broadcast and the Sunday morning session which follows must be in their seats before 9.15 a.m. As you leave this meeting tonight, we ask you to obey traffic rules, to use caution, and to be courteous in driving. We express our gratitude to the Brethren of the Tabernacle Choir and Mormon Youth Chorus for the wonderful music you have given and will give us. They will conclude, after I have spoken, by singing the Pilgrim's Chorus. The benediction will then be offered by Elder Spencer J. Condy of the Seventy. Brethren, this has been a wonderful meeting. It, in which we have been stirred and uplifted and motivated. And I pray for a continuation of the Spirit of the Lord. This great semi-annual gathering of tens and tens of thousands of boys and men is a religious conference unique and wonderful. I desire to treat two matters this evening. The first is an expression of appreciation to my brethren of the Seventy who are honorably released from active service this afternoon. Others eventually will be called to take their places. No one here needs to be told that the Church is growing. It is spreading over the world in a remarkable way. Involved in this are many problems of administration. The pace is heavy and the demands are many. Coincident with this growth, there is an increasing number of men of faith and ability who can serve full-time for a season. As announced some years ago, a program of rotation will be followed among the Brethren of the Seventy. Likewise, age and conditions of health will become factors in the length of service the Brethren are asked to give. To those who are released or who receive emeritus status, may I express appreciation in behalf of the entire Church. Without exception, you have done a magnificent work. When you were called, you consecrated yourselves to this work. You have gone wherever you have been asked to go and never complained. You have put in long and wearisome days. You have dealt with very serious problems. You have been absolutely loyal to the Church and its membership. You have served at times at the peril of your own health. You have gone when human wisdom would have dictated that you stay home. You have sacrificed private means in giving your full time to the work. You have exercised apostolic power in carrying the gospel to the nations of the earth. You have exercised the divine sealing power in the temples of the Lord. You have spoken from scores and scores of pulpits with power and conviction, with great persuasiveness to your listeners, and with deep sincerity welling up from the strong and sure testimonies which you carry in your hearts. Your wives have been a part of all of this. They, too, have made sacrifices. In many instances, they have remained at home while their husbands have been off traveling in the ministry. 
They have known some much of loneliness and even anxiety. To them we express our deep and sincere gratitude. We sincerely thank each of you. While these brethren are being released from churchwide service, they still have much to offer. They are men of demonstrated judgment and wisdom. They know the gospel. They know how to speak about it. They know how to teach it. They know how to live it. They are not ready to lie down and die. They have so much of value in them that they can still make tremendous contributions. While some have physical limitations which would make it inadvisable to call them to certain duties, others are not so limited except by factors of age which eventually slow us all. You presidents of stakes and bishops of wards should speak with them and find out their desires and be guided thereby. They have served as general authorities of the Church with worldwide jurisdiction. There is due them much of gratitude, much of respect, and much of understanding. Be sensitive to their conditions and circumstances. They leave the ranks of the active general authorities with our commendation for work well done, with our love because of the wonderful association we've had with them and their companions, with our respect for the goodness and strength of their lives, with our good wishes for health and strength and a measure of relaxation from the very hectic schedule under which they have been living, and with our prayers that the Lord will bless them and their companions and make sweet their days through the years that lie ahead. It is not easy to retire from any duty to which one has wholly dedicated himself over a long period. The very nature of their work out among the people who have come to know them and love them makes even more difficult a sudden cessation from strenuous activity. God bless you, our dear brethren. Your testimony of the truth of this work is strong and vibrant. We have heard your expressions. Your love for the Lord is real and personal. We know that. Your desire to serve is sincere and commendable. We know because we have worked beside you. Please know that you will continue to be in our prayers and that we shall never forget you, having served with you on the front lines of this great and vital work. Now I should like to say a few words on another subject. It is a matter much in the public press these days. It is the widespread use of illegal drugs with all of the ramifications associated therewith. I received a letter the other day from a government official who for years has been involved in the fight against legal, illegal drugs. He says, I know from first-hand knowledge what a scourge illicit narcotics are to this country and others. The drain on the human and monetary resources of the world being caused by this dilemma is inestimable and threatens the very foundations of freedom. I have watched as families dissolved, morals collapsed, 
and lives were lost both directly and indirectly due to the effect of drugs. I am confident this man knows whereof he speaks. He pleads for help, for public support, for church support against this terrible scourge that is destroying so many. The Wall Street Journal a few days ago carried the results of a national poll which indicated that, quote, three out of four Americans have been touched personally by drugs. Half have personally used them or have a family member who has. A remarkable 43 percent say that drugs are the nation's single most important issue. The article goes on to say a surprisingly high 70 percent of the voters surveyed believe at least half of the crimes committed in their neighborhoods are drug-related. Seventy percent of those with children between the ages of 13 and 17 say that drugs are sold in their children's schools. As most of you are aware, the President of the United States has described the drug problem as, quote, the gravest domestic threat facing our nation. He's launched a battle against illicit drugs with some $8 billion to be spent on strengthening police forces, building more prisons, and implementing other measures. Notwithstanding this, quote, those responding to the poll were deeply skeptical that the battle can be won. Only a third believe a federal program would do a great deal or quite a bit to correct the drug problem. Close quote. A woman respondent said, no amount of money is going to stop it. It has to be a change within the hearts and minds of people. Young people have to think I have just one body and I am going to need it all my life. I'm inclined to agree with this woman. Stiffer enforcement measures may be necessary, but I believe that only when far greater numbers of people conclude within their hearts and minds that the fruits of drug taking are only sorrow and trouble, remorse and even death, then will things change to any significant degree. I wish I could say that all of our people, and particularly our young men, are free from this scourge. They are not, although I am pleased to note that drug use has declined among young people in some areas, including Utah. Many of you young men to whom I am speaking are high school students. We may not be able to change the nation or the world, but we can change the problem in our own lives as individuals and in that process move others in the same direction. Some have even used as an alibi the fact that drugs are not mentioned in the word of wisdom. What a miserable excuse. <laughs> There's likewise no mention of the hazards of diving into an empty swimming pool. or of jumping from an overpass onto the freeway. But who doubts the deadly consequences of such? Common sense would dictate against such behavior, 
regardless of the word of wisdom. There is a divinely given reason for avoiding these illegal substances. I am convinced that their use is an affront to God. He is our creator. We are made in his image. These remarkable and wonderful bodies are his handiwork. Does anyone think that he can deliberately injure and impair his body without affronting its creator? We are told again and again that the body is the tabernacle of the Spirit. We are told that it is a temple holy to the Lord. In a time of terrible, terrible conflict between the Nephites and the Lamanites, we are told that the Nephites, who had been strong, became weak, like unto their brethren the Lamanites, and that the Spirit of the Lord did no more preserve them, yea, it had withdrawn from them, because the Spirit of the Lord doth not dwell in unholy temples. Alma taught the people of Zarahemla, The Lord doth not dwell in unholy temples, neither can filthiness or anything which is unclean be received into the kingdom of God. Can anyone doubt that the taking of these mind and body-destroying drugs is an act of unholiness? Does anyone think that the Spirit of God can dwell in the temple of the body when that body is defiled by these destructive elements? If there be a young man anywhere who is listening tonight who is tampering with these things, let him resolve forthwith and with the strongest determination of which he is capable that he will never touch them again. You hold the priesthood of Almighty God, and the revelation is clear that this priesthood cannot be exercised in any degree of unrighteousness. In holding the Aaronic priesthood, you partake of the keys of the gospel of repentance. Begin immediately to implement that repentance in your own life. It may not be easy to stand up to your friends. It may be most difficult to resist the demands of your body for more of this illicit material. Pray for strength. Seek help. God will bless you if you make the effort. And I promise you that you will be grateful for the remainder of your lives for the decision you have made. I know it is difficult to resist following when your peers are pulling you along with others down into the swamp of narcotics. It takes a man with something of a bit of steel in his spine to say no and then keep his resolution. We recently deemed it prudent for reasons of personal safety to move our American missionaries out of one of the nations of South America. It was not an easy decision. We have many wonderful and faithful Latter-day Saints there. The people in that area are receptive to the gospel. For the most part, they are good people, law-abiding, and desirous of doing what is right. But the very life of that nation is threatened by powerful men of the drug cartel. There would be no such problem if the people of the United States and other nations refuse to become a market for these narcotics. It is a supply and demand situation. 
there is great demand with a ready supply to meet that demand. Everyone, my brethren, who partakes of these illicit drugs has on his hands some of the blood of those who have been killed or wounded in the fight to stop the cultivation and exportation of these destructive products. You cannot afford to tamper with them in the least. Certainly you must be grateful for your bodies and your minds, the very substance of your mortal lives. Certainly you must know that health is the most precious of assets. Certainly you recognize that for the years that lie ahead, you will need health of body and clarity of mind if you are to live productively and with the respect of your associates. You would not knowingly break an arm or a leg just for the fun of it. Broken bones will mend and will function again in a normal way. But a mind warped by drugs or a body weakened or distorted by these evil things will not be easily repaired. The drug-induced destruction of self-worth and self-confidence is almost impossible to restore. To you who may be partaking, I repeat, stop immediately. To you who at any time in the future may be tempted, I urge you to stand your ground. Reflect on the fact that you are a son of God, our eternal Father, blessed with his holy priesthood and endowed with those faculties of body and mind which will help you to take a place that is significant in the world in which you will live. Do not throw away your future. Do not jeopardize the well-being of your posterity. I watched on television the other evening a documentary on what are called cocaine babies. I've seen few things more pitiable. These children, born of addicted mothers, come into the world under a terrible handicap. Their future prospects are hopeless. Many of them, doubtless, throughout their lives will be cared for at public expense. You will bear this burden as taxpayers. That, of course, is serious. But more serious is the manner in which the gift of life has been so wickedly abused by parents who had not the will to resist the drugs that have all but destroyed their children. In earlier centuries, there were plagues that swept across England and the nations of Europe. They struck like lightning, carrying tens of thousands to their death. This modern drug scourge has become as a plague on the world. But in most cases, the death it brings is not swift, but rather it follows a long period spent in misery and pain and regret. Unlike the plagues of old from which there was no known defense, the defense is clear and relatively easy in the case of illicit drugs. It lies simply in refraining from touching them. As I look at you young men in the tabernacle tonight, I recognize that in as brief a period as ten years from now, the youngest of you will be twenty-two. Hopefully you will have completed honorable missions. You priests who are here tonight will, for the most part, have completed your educational programs and will be employed in the vocations of your choice.
Ten years pass so quickly. They are almost as sunrise and sunset. Do not blight your future. Do not impair your capacity. Do not offend God in whose image you were created. Although I recognize that drugs are not mentioned specifically in the Word of Wisdom, I am confident that the promise attached to that revelation will apply also to those who refrain from these evil and vicious destroyers. I repeat, therefore, these marvelous words of the Lord. And all saints who remember to keep and do these sayings, walking in obedience to the commandments, shall receive health in their navel and marrow to their bones, and shall find wisdom and great treasures of knowledge, even hidden treasures, and shall run and not be weary, and shall walk and not faint. And I, the Lord, give unto them a promise that the destroying angel shall pass by them as the children of Israel and not slay them. Let no member of this Church, be he man or boy, girl or woman, fall prey to this frightful scourge. Some things are right, some are wrong. You know this as well as do I. God grants you the strength to stand free from this enslavement and from the personal holocaust of destruction which inevitably follows. God bless you to this end, I humbly pray, as one who loves you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. 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 Thank you, President. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That means everything to us. That's the prophet of the Lord who said amen. When we sang the congregational song, I was reminded of an experience shared with me by Carlos Acey, who said that he knew a bishop in Provo named Israel Heaton, who one Sabbath morning awakened ill and said he couldn't make it to priesthood meeting. His wife then called the first counselor in the bishopric and said that Israel was home ill and would they remember him in the opening prayer at the opening exercises of priesthood meeting. The first counselor dutifully stood that morning and announced that Bishop Israel Heaton was ill and would he who was asked to offer the invocation remember him in the prayer. But first, he said, let us sing the opening song, Israel, Israel, God is Calling. <laughs> He was made well. <laughs> While driving to the office one morning, I passed a dry cleaning establishment which had a sign by the side of the front door. It read, It's the service that counts. I suppose in a highly competitive field such as the dry cleaning business and many others, the differentiating factor which distinguishes one store from another is indeed service. The message from the small sign simply would not leave my mind. And suddenly I realized why. In actual fact, it is the service that counts, the Lord's service. 
all of us admire and respect that noble king of Book of Mormon fame, even King Benjamin. How respected he must have been for the people to gather in such great numbers to hear his words, receive his counsel. I think it most interesting that the multitude pitched their tents round about the temple, every man having his tent, with the door thereof, toward the temple, that thereby they might remain in their tents and hear the words which King Benjamin would speak to them. Even a high tower had to be erected that the people might hear his words. In the true humility of an inspired leader, King Benjamin recounted his desire to serve his people and lead them in paths of righteousness. He then declared to them, Because I said unto you that I had spent my days in your service, I do not desire to boast, for I have only been in the service of God. And behold, I tell you these things, that ye may learn wisdom, that ye may learn that when ye are in the service of your fellow beings, ye are only in the service of your God. This is the service that counts, brethren, the service to which all of us have been called, the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. As he enlists us to his cause, he invites us to draw close to him. He speaks to you and to me, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. To all who go forth in his service, he provides this assurance. I will go before your face. I will be on your right hand and upon your left hand, and my spirit shall be in your hearts, and mine angels round about to bear you up. Many assembled tonight have responsibility to provide leadership to those holding the Aaronic priesthood. To you, I say, the finest teaching you can provide is that of a good example. Youth need fewer critics and more models to follow. All of us who are engaged in the Lord's work have the responsibility to reach out to those who are less active and bring them to the service of the Lord. Their souls are ever so precious. In that revelation referred to earlier, given to Joseph Smith the prophet, Oliver Cowdery, and David Whitmer, the Lord taught, Remember, the worth of souls in the, is great in the sight of God. For behold, the Lord your Redeemer suffered death in the flesh, wherefore he suffered the pain of all men, that all men might repent and come unto him. And how great is his joy in the soul that repenteth. Wherefore you are called to cry repentance unto this people, and if it so be that you should labor all your days in crying repentance unto this people, and bring save it be one soul unto me, how great shall be your joy with him in the kingdom of my Father. And now, if your joy will be great with one soul that you have brought unto me into the kingdom of my Father, 
How great will be your joy if you should bring many souls unto me. Some years ago, while attending a priesthood session of a state quarterly conference in the Monument Park West Stake, this scripture became the theme for the visitor from the General Welfare Committee, my former state president, Paul C. Child. In his accustomed style, Brother Child left the stand and began to walk down the aisle among the assembled priesthood brethren. He quoted the verse, Remember the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. He paused. Then he asked the question, Who among you can tell me the worth of a human soul? Every man in attendance began to think of an answer in the event Brother Child called on him. I had grown up under his leadership. I knew he would never call on a high counselor or a member of a bishopric. Rather, he would select one who would least expect to be called. Sure enough, he called from a list he carried the name of an elders' quorum president. Thunderstruck, the brother stammered as he asked, Brother Child, would you re please repeat the question? Repeat the question. He had been dozing. The question was repeated, followed by an even longer pause. I looked at him and wondered, what are you going to say? Lord, help him, help him. Suddenly the response came forth. The worth of a human soul is its capacity to become as God. Brother Child closed his scripture, walked back to the pulpit, and while passing me, whispered, a profound reply, a profound reply. With this perspective firmly in our minds, we are prepared to serve in the great mission of bringing souls unto Him. Many of you hold the Aaronic Priesthood. You are preparing to serve as missionaries. Begin now to learn in your youth the joy of service in the cause of the Master. Following Thanksgiving a year or so ago, I received a letter from a widow whom I had known in the stake where I served in the presidency. She had just returned from a dinner sponsored by her bishopric. Her words reflect the peace she felt and the gratitude which filled her heart. She wrote, Dear President Monson, I am living now in Bountiful. I miss the people of our old stake. But let me tell you of a wonderful experience I have had. In early November, all the widows and older people received an invitation to come to a lovely dinner. We were told not to worry about transportation, since this would be provided by the older youth of the ward. At the appointed hour, a very nice young man rang the bell and took me and another sister to the stake center. He stopped the car, and two other young men walked with us to the chapel, where the young ladies took us to where we removed our wraps, then into the cultural hall, where we sat and visited for a few minutes. Then they took us to the tables where we were seated on each side by either a young woman or a young man. Then we were served a lovely Thanksgiving dinner and afterward provided a choice program. After the program, we were given our dessert, either apple or pumpkin pie.
Then we left, and on the way out, we were given a plastic bag with sliced turkey and two rolls. Then the young man took us home. It was such a nice, lovely evening. Most of us shed a tear or two for the love and the respect we were shown. President Monson, when you see young people treat others like these young people did, I feel the Church is in good hands. I reflected on my association with this lovely widow, now grown old in the service of the Lord. There came to mind the words from the Epistle of James, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. I add my own commendation. God bless the leaders, the young men and the young women, who so unselfishly brought such joy to the lonely and such peace to their souls. Through their experience, they learned the meaning of service and felt the nearness of the Lord. One of the great missionaries of pioneer times was one named Joseph Millet. Let me tell you about him. He served a mission to the maritime provinces of Canada when but 18 years of age. His mission was marked by discouragement, yet punctuated by faith-promoting experiences, even miraculous intervention by the Lord. This lifelong servant of the Lord, who learned on his mission and never forgot what it is like to be in need and how to give, leaves us with this final picture of himself taken from his personal journal. I'll use his own words, remembering he was a miller. One of my children came in, said that Brother Newton Hall's folks were out of bread, had none that day. I put flour in a sack to send up to Brother Hall's. Just then Brother Hall came in, says I. Brother Hall, how are you out for flour? Brother Millet, we have none. Well, Brother Hall, there's some in that sack. I've divided and was going to send it to you. Your children told mine that you were out. Brother Hall began to cry, said he had tried others, could not get any, went to the cedars and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him to go to Joseph Millet. Well, Brother Hall, you needn't bring this back if the Lord sent you for it. You don't owe me for it. His journal continued, You can't tell how good it made me feel to know that the Lord knew that there was such a person as Joseph Millet. Brethren, the Lord knows each of us. Do you think for a moment that he who notes the sparrow's fall would not be mindful of our needs and our service? We simply cannot afford to attribute to the Son of God the same frailties which we find in ourselves. A while back, my good friend G. Marion Hinckley from Utah County my fellow trail rider came to the office with two grandsons who were brothers, one having served an honorable mission in Japan, the other in Scotland. Brother Hinckley said, Let me share with you a wonderful experience which came to these grandsons of mine. His buttons were almost bursting with pride. In faraway Japan, 
a commercial street photographer stopped one of the brothers, having taken a picture of him holding a small child. He offered the print of the picture for sale to the missionary and his companion. They explained that they were on a tight budget, that they were missionaries, and they directed the photographer's attention to the nameplate which each one wore. They didn't purchase the picture. Some months later, the brother serving in Scotland was asking two missionaries why they had arrived late for a zone meeting when they told this story. A most persistent street photographer from Japan, a photographer, had attempted to sell them a picture of a missionary in Japan holding a small child. They had no interest in the picture, but to avoid arriving even later at their zone meeting, they purchased it. A likely story, responded Elder Lamb, whereupon they handed him the picture. He could not believe his eyes. It was a photograph of his own brother in faraway Japan. That day in my office they presented to me that picture, and with their grandfather beaming his approval, they declared, The, sure, the Lord surely is mindful of his servants, the missionaries. As they departed my office, I thought, yes, the Lord is mindful of his missionaries and their fathers, their mothers, their grandparents, and all who sacrifice that precious souls may be taught and provided his gospel. Now many are not on the front line of missionary service, as Brother Ballard mentioned earlier today. In the Church callings which they fulfill, they may be in the background. Does God remember them also? Is He mindful of their needs and the yearnings of their hearts? What about those who have been in the limelight but grown old with faithful service, have been released, and have slipped into the anonymity of that vast congregation of Church members? To all such individuals, I testify that He does remember and that He does bless. Many years ago, I was assigned to divide the Modesto, California stake. The Saturday meetings have been held, the new stake presidency selected, and preparations concluded for the activities of the next morning, the Sunday session of conference. As the Sunday session was about to begin, there went through my mind the thought that I had been in Modesto before. But when? I let my mind search back through the years for a confirmation of the thought I was thinking. Suddenly I remembered Modesto years ago had been a part of the San Joaquin stake which I attended. The stake president was Clifton Rooker. He lived in Modesto. I had stayed in his home during that conference. Oh, but that was many years earlier. Could my thoughts be playing tricks on me this morning? I said to the stake president and his counselors as they sat on the stand, Is this the same stake which Clifton Rooker once presided over? The brethren answered, Yes, it is. He was our former president. It's been many years since I was last here, I said. Is Brother Rooker still here? Is he with us today? They responded, Oh, yes. We saw him early this morning as he came to conference. I asked, Where is he seated? 
on this day of special historic importance when the stake will be divided? We don't know exactly, they said. The response was a good one, for the building was filled to overflowing. I stepped to the pulpit and asked, is Clifton Rooker in the audience today? There he was, way back in the recreation hall, hardly in view of the pulpit. I felt the inspiration to say to him publicly, Brother Rooker, we have a place for you on the stand. Would you please come forward? With every eye watching, Clifton Rooker made that long walk from the rear of the building right up to the front and took his place by my side. It became my opportunity to call upon him, one of the pioneers of that stake, to bear his testimony and to tell the people whom he loved that he was the actual beneficiary of the service he had rendered to his Heavenly Father and to his stake members. After the session was concluded, I said, Brother Rooker, how would you like to step into the Relief Society room with me and help me set apart the two new stake presidencies of these stakes? He replied, Brother Monson, that would be a highlight for me. We proceeded to the Relief Society room, and there, there with his hands joining mine and the hands of the outgoing stake presidency, we set apart those two new stake presidencies to their calling. After that, Brother Rooker and I embraced as he said goodbye and went to his home that Sunday evening. Early the next morning, after I had returned to my home, I had a telephone call from the son of Clifton Rooker. Brother Monson, he said, I'd like to tell you about my dad. He passed away this morning, but before he did so, he said that yesterday was truly the happiest day of his life. As I heard that message from Brother Rooker's son, I paused to thank God for the inspiration which came to me to invite this good man while he was yet alive and able to enjoy them to come forward and receive the plaudits of the stake members whom he had served. To all those who serve the Lord by serving their fellow men, and to those who are the recipients of this selfless service, the Redeemer seems to be speaking to you when he declared, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was unhungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? 
or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. That each of us may qualify for this blessing from our Lord is my personal prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Brethren, it's a marvelous privilege to be with you this evening. I've appreciated so much the messages that we have heard. Someone who is a little more poetic than theological said, Memory is the one garden of Eden out of which one need never be cast. Good memories are real blessings. Tonight I'd like to share a few memories that have made a real difference in my life. When I was a young man about the age of some of you deacons here, my dad was bishop of the ward of our little farming town of Benida in southeastern Idaho. I remember the first time he brought me with him to Salt Lake City to attend a general priesthood meeting. In those years, Dad always seemed to me to be really old. As I recognize now, he must have been around 38 years of age. <laughs> I was happy to be with him. I remember we sat in the balcony there on the north side. Before the meeting started, Dad pointed out which one of the brethren on the stand was President Heber J. Grant and which were his counselors. I saw the Twelve Apostles and the other brethren. And that night, a warm feeling of love and respect for the leaders of the Church came over me and has continued to grow to this day. That night, I decided I wanted to do everything I could to support my dad as bishop. I didn't want to do anything that would embarrass or disappoint him. To this day, I am grateful for those feelings that came to me that night. None of us know how long we're going to live. In the Book of Mormon, Alma asked the question, Can you look up to God at that day with a pure heart and clean hands? I remember when the need to have clean hands and a pure heart became very meaningful to me. It was just after my friend David Carlson and I had graduated from Preston High School. We were happy with the fact that it was the same school that President Ezra Taft Benson and Harold B. Lee attended when they were growing up, even though they would changed the name from the Oneida State Academy to Preston High School. We still had some of our classes in the same building. We thought that 1946 was the golden year of athletics in Preston High. That year, our teams won the district championship in every sport and in basketball, our team won the state championship, and that was in the days when the small high schools played against the big ones. David was a good friend to me and I think to everybody in the school. He was a fine student. He worked hard and received excellent grades. He achieved in scouting and seminary and was a well-coordinated athlete. David was a member of the basketball team, and his playing was one of the reasons our team won the state championship. Soon after high school graduation, David went to the hospital for what everyone thought was a routine operation. But there were some complications. Infection set in, and the next thing we heard was that he had died. We could not believe it. At age 18, 
David had died. What a shock. I still remember how painful it was to lose a good friend. His funeral was held in the stake center. Everyone seemed to come. It was like a crowded stake conference with standing room only. Bishop Eberhard included in a statement in his remarks that made a powerful impression on me. He pointed over to the sacrament table and said, When David knelt there to bless the sacrament, I knew that he knelt there with clean hands and a pure heart. I never had to worry about what he had been doing the Saturday night before. I thought that was one of the finest compliments he could have paid to my friend, and I wanted to live in such a way that my bishop would not have to worry about what I'd been doing the night before. I'm sure that all of us could benefit from making a similar decision. Another memory taught me more about the value and importance of fulfilling a mission. A few years ago, while serving as president of the Missionary Training Center, I had a delightful visit with one of the missionaries who came into my office. He was obviously older than the average young elder. He was about 25 years of age. He told me of his conversion. When he was 16, he was baptized into the church in Europe, along with his mother. His father did not object to his wife and sons joining the church, even though he was not interested. He was a banker and wanted his son to prepare himself for a profession in the same area. The young man loved studying the scriptures, but occasionally had some difficulty when his father would interrupt him when he was studying his seminary course, and he'd say, Don't waste your time studying those things. Study your regular school courses so that you can be accepted at the university. The elder said, One night later on, when I was about 18, I had a dream. I dreamed that I'd been called on a mission to Japan. I felt so good about it. I really wanted to go. The next day, when I told my parents about my dream, my dad strongly objected. He said, Oh, no. Don't waste two years of your life on a mission. You need to get on with your university studies. Since he was too young to leave for a mission at that time anyway, he did go on with his university studies. He chose to come to Brigham Young University. He majored in finance and banking for his undergraduate degree and stayed on to complete a master's degree in business administration. He was hired by an international banking firm in Germany and was doing very well as a promising junior executive, but the idea of filling a mission would not leave his mind. And so he went to visit with his bishop and stake president. When he told his stake president of the vivid dream he had years before about going on a mission to Japan, his stake president chuckled and said, Well, I don't think you'll be going to Japan. Missionaries from here generally are called to some other country on the continent, and a few go over to the British Isles. When he received his call, his father heard of it. He came and tried to change his son's mind because he thought that a two-year interruption would be a disaster for his son's professional career. One of the bank executives came down from Frankfurt and tried to discourage him from leaving, saying something like, My boy, do you know how much this will cost you in salary and opportunity loss? You ought to sit down and figure it out. The elder said that he did that, and he had determined that the mission would cost him a very large amount of money more than $150,000.
Then tears came to his eyes, and he said, But, President, if it were to cost several times that amount, I would still be here, because I know that serving a mission is what the Lord wants me to do. That elder was one of the few I remember who left the missionary training center speaking what Japanese he had learned with a German accent. <laughs> he was called to Japan. He served a successful mission, and I'm confident that when he had finished, he found many international businesses that would like to hire a junior executive who can speak English, German, and Japanese, the major languages of the economic free world. Even if he didn't earn an extra cent, he still knew that he had done what the Lord wanted him to do. Through the Prophet Joseph Smith, the Lord revealed that scripture which we've already heard from Elder Banks this evening, that the thing which will be of the most worth unto you will be to declare repentance unto this people, that you may bring souls unto me. Over the years, we've been so impressed by the thousands of missionaries we've seen at the Missionary Training Center, at Ricks College, and elsewhere, who have demonstrated their willingness to serve their missions, and some of them at great personal sacrifice. Brethren, may it be that in our lives generally and in our priesthood responsibilities specifically, that we, like David, my good friend, will set the kind of example so that our bishops will not have to wonder or worry about what we have been doing the Saturday night before. I'm grateful for sons who still come with me to general priesthood sessions. You young brethren who are not with your fathers tonight for whatever reason can decide right now that when you are blessed with sons of your own, you will bring them to the general priesthood sessions, wherever they may be broadcast. As I look up into the balcony, that north balcony tonight, I see some of you young men who are seated with your fathers. And I remember. I remember that first time so long ago. Dad passed away four years ago, and especially at general priesthood session time, I'm reminded more forcefully of how much we miss him. May we strive never to do anything that would embarrass or disappoint our Father in Heaven or our parents, and it will help make more of our memories to be good ones, because good memories constitute the one Garden of Eden out of which we need never be cast. Young brethren, we respect you. We have confidence that you will rise to the best that is in you, and we love you. Our Heavenly Father lives. He also loves you and even knows you by name. Jesus is the Christ, and this is His Church, led by the living prophets who are presiding at this general priesthood session. I share this testimony with you in the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.